hope that you all are doing well this morning. Um, we have the, the great joy to, to be starting another book in the New Testament, and that is Second Peter. You remember, First Peter was written to suffering Christians in Asia Minor. They were suffering sporadic persecution as they followed Christ. First Peter, I think, through these times have, and these weeks that we've been together and been in First Peter, it has been encouraging and has been faith-building. It has given us a deep perspective as a people who suffer in a fallen world and see suffering around us in a fallen world, and we see Christians facing persecution throughout the world and even in our own country. Yet we know, as Peter has told us and as we see throughout Scripture, that suffering is a tool in the hand of God, our sovereign Father, who is using it to build our faith and strengthen us in Christ and give us confidence in Christ, but also to loosen our grip upon sin and upon this world. That's what First Peter is about. It was a letter to the church and in love that the church would endure faithfully. First Peter does so. Second Peter then follows on the trail of encouragement. Because this letter was not only or was this letter is written not only to encourage Christians in their persecution, but mainly he is targeting to encourage them and to warn them, the churches that are facing false teaching and false doctrine. The tone of 2 Peter is a little more serious and critical and a little less pastoral as 1 Peter was. But in 2 Peter, he's going to get to some great truths. And in those truths and pointing out false teaching and false belief, he's not going to hold back. He tells it like it is. He goes right after those who are teaching the false doctrine and those who are leading the church and people astray. It's not a letter to the enemy, but it's a letter to the beloved who are being tempted to follow the enemy, but to remain in their faith Let me give you a little more about, about 2 Peter. 2 Peter was one of the last books to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. Uh, apparently, as, as uh, church history goes, that it was uh, origin when he endorsed its authenticity um, is when it became a part, of the, uh, a part of the canon of Scripture. Now, some people would say, well, if, if that's really the case, then, then why should it even be in scripture, and I beg to differ in a way that I think we should consider it in a different direction or a different way, and that is I think the church was being very careful, and the church was taking into consideration every detail when deciding the canon of each book of the Bible, including Second Peter. Some of the other questions that arise from Second Peter, mainly it comes through, through authorship, uh, because they claim that this was written after Peter's death. Some would claim it was written after Peter's death. 
and then someone just signed, whoever it was, uh, in a, a, a pseudo name, wrote in Peter as the, as the, as the author. So, so that's one question. The second question is, is why would it take so long for, then, for it to be accepted? Well, we just, we just answered that, is the, the being sure, making sure that this is the canon of Scripture. Number three, third question that's usually asked about 2 Peter is, why does 2 Peter sound a lot like Jude? And if it sounds so much like Jude, then 2 Peter, whoever wrote 2 Peter, must have used Jude as, the, as his main resource then to write 2 Peter. And Peter was dead by then, so it couldn't, been, it couldn't have been him. Um, but honestly, the question should be, why does Jude sound a lot like 2 Peter, not the other way around? Uh, another question, and this is kind of getting to the weeds a bit, is that in 2 Peter 3.15, the author refers directly to, to Paul and to Paul's writings and Paul's collection of, of, of writings. But at this time, uh, when, when, when Peter was written, uh, it doesn't seem that Paul's letters was, were as widely circulated until after his, his death, which, by the way, according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down by the Emperor Nero in 68 A.D., which means this letter had to have been written before then. Paul's letters were uh, circulated a little bit more or widely after that. Uh, and just to give, again, perspective, 1 Peter was written uh, around 62, 63 A.D., uh, so put it in perspective with 2 Peter at 64 to 67. Paul, or, or excuse me, Peter was uh, again in Rome, and at this point, if it was around 66, 67 A.D., the writing was on the wall. Persecution was, was coming, and coming a more widespread than it ever has been, for, been, been before. But 2 Peter addresses the false teachers once again. Um, now, but back to the authorship uh, uh, debate. None of those arguments, however, can, uh, can overshadow how widely accepted and self-authenticating the authorship of 1 Peter and 2 Peter are. Uh, so I believe, not just believe, but I can confidently say um, that these words were penned by Peter himself. Uh, so if you read in any goofy commentaries that say otherwise, you can just close it up. So 2 Peter chapter 1, let's read together starting in verse 1. Simon, or Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Savior and our Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I want to stop here because I wanted to, in the beginning here, give some more introductory remarks about 2 Peter, its theme, its aim, uh, but also, I believe that these first two verses are setting up for us the rest of the book, and we need to take some time to just unpack these by themselves. I know often that I sound like a broken record, and especially from addressing 
First uh, Peter and the persecution and suffering that they, they've dealt with, but I'm going to go at the risk of sounding like a broken record again and say that we live in some wacko times. All right, wacko. Crazy, nuts, whatever you want to use. It seems like it's one thing after another. We don't have to talk about and unpack and, and, and go through each, each of the lists because we would be here for, a, for, for much longer than we would have to. And, and yet what we should understand, brothers and sisters, as we're watching such in, just insanity as the world is just losing its mind in every direction, What's so blatantly clear, what should be so blatantly clear to us in our world today, and we've known this for a while now, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, is that in our world, people have no direction. They have no direction. It, it, they, have, they have no clear truth. And whatever they claim to be their clear truth, it's not based upon actual knowledge, truth, a truth that can give sustainable direction, that doesn't shift with every wind of culture. And the consequences of that just continue to be devastating. Postmodernism has destroyed so much. But the problem, but the problem begins to show itself even in the most basic situations of life. In the most ordinary of circumstances, things like that we deal with 98% of the time in our life, they require clear direction. It requires clear direction, step by step. This is how you do it. Where are my keys? Step one, two, three. Here they are. How do I get to the doctor's office? Take left here. Stop here. Yet take the logic of postmodern thoughts that's now been shifted over into defining gender in a popular culture and try to apply the same logic to the very simple, basic directions required in life. Let's do that, right? Case study. How do I get the Krispy Kreme? Well, take a left from here. But if right feels better, that's okay. You can go right. But I don't want to offend right if it identifies as left or wants to be pronounced that way. So I'm just going to tell you to go right when left may feel better or more make more sense to you. But again, I don't still feel comfortable with any of these terms, so have fun. How do you feel about your chances of getting your donuts or anything else? And forgive me, I don't mean to make light of it because it is a very sad, tragic, devastating ideology that is destroying lives. But that is a culture, that is people that has lost any 
comprehension of direction. It doesn't work. This, this, this ideology, this thought, this logic doesn't work because we are a people that need clear directions, especially if we want donuts. We need clear direction. Think about life requires clear direction. But even when it comes to the best and most important issues of, of life, of life and death, eternity with God or eternal damnation, the world has no care or concern for truth that gives clear direction. If we are going to get through this life, if we are going to endure well, if we are going to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, then brothers and sisters, we better have a clear and straightforward instruction and direction. The overall theme of 2 Peter does that. It sees a church that's being tempted to go off in goofy theology, goofy ideology, goofy philosophies, dumb things, and Peter says, here's the direction. Don't stray. Here it is. Here is, as he says in verse 2, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God, knowledge, is used 11 times throughout this letter. The knowledge of God is the requirement for direction. Second Peter reminds its readers across the ages that the content of the apostles' message is for the church to know God through Jesus Christ. So then is this relevant to us today? Well, it's completely relevant. It's completely relevant today for us, as it, as it ever has. In a delect, uh, directionless world that is tempting and coercing us to be directionless as them, misery loves company, they have no direction, and even in their fruitless pursuits to gain the whole world, yet they're still going to lose their souls. The church needs to be firmly grounded in this direction. It needs to be constantly reminded of its direction. It needs to be reminded to stay on this direction, to be encouraged, shepherded back onto the right direction. And constantly now, the church is being confronted now, over and over, like waves swelling in, coming in, swells, coming in, hitting the beachfront, over and over, waves of questions that we have to deal with. Continual theological error, tyrannical authorities, false teachers, morality, and hurting saints. And Peter deals with these kind of questions here in this second letter. Some of the questions can, are, are, is this. One of them is, can someone come to God without the knowledge of Jesus as the God's son? That's a, relative, a very uh, relevant question for today. Because unfortunately today, that question has now shifted to, to the point where man believes that they can do anything. And they can believe anything. Religious plurality is just kind of the accepted norm. There's no exception to it. And the tenet of religious plurality gets us to that point, that anyone can just do whatever they want and say whatever they want. Have choices galore. Religious choices abound. 
don't really need Jesus or any kind of biblical knowledge of God. It's been, ref it's been refined in many different false teaching to just be good works or be socially responsible and climate conscious and advocate for social justice. But Peter provides the answer that a true knowledge of God is fully and completely found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's one question that he deals with. Another question is, is can someone know God and yet abandon rigorous life that the apostles require of those who profess Christ? And that's what fault these false teachers want them to do, abandon what was actually biblically right and wrong. Hey, there are alternative lifestyles, other directions that you can go. Amazingly, again, there is nothing new under the sun because this continues to be a gospel issue today. Can you really know God and yet separate yourself from a biblical sexuality? Can you really know God and pursue all the things of life for the gratification of your flesh and for personal gain? The answer, spoil alert, is no. Yet Peter confronts this question head on. Another question, third question is, is can someone know God, <clears throat> can know God and still reject the truth that Jesus will return? That may sound like kind of a weird question, but let me explain it to you this way. What they're really asking is not necessarily if Jesus is going to come back. The question really is, I don't want to believe he's coming back because if he's coming back, he's going to judge me. He's going to judge me. Because that's what he's going to do. He's going to come back as the, the righteous judge riding the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his leg. He's coming. He's going to come and judge the living and the dead. And a dying, lost world who is directionless hates this idea. False teachers hate this idea. And again, this is a major false teaching that was happening in the church then and happening today. The knowledge of God is at stake in these questions. The direction of the church is at stake in these questions. The hearts of people, the lives of people, the souls of people, life and death are at stake in these questions. These are some pretty important directions then. But don't miss the aims of 2 Peter. And in its theme, the knowledge of God is to establish the church upon the solid foundation so that it will be its direction. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he aims to establish, strengthen, and, to and stabilize Christians in the knowledge of God. These words that we've just used, right? Establish, strengthen, stabilize. These are words that are found and ideas that are found throughout 2 Peter. And they all have the same point to them, so that you will be stable and strengthened and able to stand throughout life no matter what comes your way because your firm foundation, the compass, right? The firm foundation that gives us direction in all things of life is the knowledge of God. 
second aim Peter has is to, to rebuke and to warn and to correct. To correct those and to warn those, any of those who, who teach anything other than this knowledge of God. Chapter 2, he goes right at the false teachers pretty, pretty hard. It's some of the strongest language against false teachers in, in all the Bible. If there's any teacher or preacher or minister or elder or self-proclaimed whatever preaches some other gospel than the knowledge of God according to the scripture, well, let's just say they better check themselves. And lastly, Peter's aim is to rescue and reclaim the faithful who have tripped and fallen along the way. Peter's point is not just to point out the stumbling churches that are going in the wrong direction, but he wants to pick them up. He wants to shake them a little bit. He wants to dust them off, and he wants to pat them on the head and push them in the right direction of the knowledge of God. There is no other guide for us than the knowledge of God, because it is through his knowledge that we have been giving everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 3. It is through that knowledge that we are, that we are faithful and effective, escaping the, the sin of this world. And it is in that knowledge that we are kept from falling, and in that knowledge that we are assured of our entrance into the Lord's eternal kingdom. That's some important knowledge. I would have to say that 2 Peter is quite relevant for us, to stay, for us today, so that we too will stay in the right direction and the right knowledge of God. But what about our two introductory verses of 1 Peter here in verses 1 and 2? Is there anything meaningful for us? Well, I think there is. And I think he's communicating two very main points as, he, as he's opening up and greeting this letter. And these two main emphasis that he's making is, who are the recipients of the letter, and why is, what's the reason for the letter? And some of that we've already dealt with. But let's first deal with the recipients of the letter. Peter's one of those guys in the Bible that, um, unfortunately, he gets, he gets kind of a hard time, doesn't he? Like we, we like to bust on him sometimes, and, um, and he'll always be re remembered, unfortunately, from the worst decision of his life. The worst thing that he ever done. It's like, it may, it may not be the first thing that will come up, but it'll always come up in conversation when he's talking about Peter. And, you know, just in that, you just kind of have to ask yourself, how would, how would you like the worst thing you've ever done to always be the first thing that comes up in conversation about you for the rest of history? <laughs> no. That's, by the way, this, that's just evidence that the Bible's true. These guys didn't change it. Peter didn't go to John and be like, uh, John, bro, we've been together for a while. Man, how about we change that? You don't have to make me the superhero, but, but certainly me not cut off the guy's ear kind of thing. Mark's like, too late, I got it. Yeah, I don't want to be in that place either. But we also have to admit that we like Peter a lot. And the reason why we like Peter a lot is because we can, we can sympathize with him. We have a soft spot for Peter for the, for the very same reasons that he's often brought up. We, we have a soft spot in it. we not wanting to admit it, but we can relate to him. We know what it means to speak, speak a big game and to have a big game and have big claims and, and yet still fall so hard. Peter understood forgiveness. 
Peter understood grace. We've talked about these things throughout 1 Peter. He understood hardship. He understood suffering. Brothers and sisters, we, have, we can relate to him quite a bit. And so Peter is a good instructor for us. As inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is a good instructor for us. And when he introduces himself here in verse 1, he does so in a very peculiar way. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that it's peculiar, because it's different from 1 Peter. It's different from 1 Peter. It's a pretty standard greeting, but yet it's different from 1 Peter. But there's two differences in, the different, in what he says. First, he brings in the name Simeon, or Simon. And then he also then describes himself as a servant. Now, Simeon, or Simon, is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name, of his Hebrew name. And that was a pretty popular name in the Bible. One of Jacob's sons, right, was named Simeon, right? The, um, the, the guy in the, the temple that, that, that blessed baby Jesus and, and, uh, and, and Luke. What an amazing story. His name was Simeon. Peter is not Hebrew, right? The name Peter is not Hebrew, but it's Greek, and we all, most of us know that it means the rock, and we also know that that wasn't the name that Peter gave himself, although kind of surprising, right, if you had to guess, just knowing his bravado. But no, it's the name that Jesus gave him in Matthew 16. So Simeon, or Simon, is his name, right? That, that's his name. That's the name that his parents gave him. And then you have this other name, Peter, and he's not being redundant. He's not saying, me, me, or Peter, Peter, or Simon, Simon. He's not being Redundant, but what I think he's saying is, is he wants us to understand that this is the whole man of Peter. The whole man of who's writing to this. It's almost like he's saying, there's no question of who I am and what I have done. The bad, the ugly, the prideful, and the arrogant. I come writing this with baggage and with sin. I'm a man who has sinned greatly, and I don't deserve the position that I am in. Simon, this is who I was born as. That is the old man. But Peter, that is who I was born again as. I am the man that I am today because of Christ. There, there's something to be said in what he's showing us here about the whole person, brothers and sisters, is that if you are in Christ, your name still might be the same, but that you are, all, but you are a new creation in Christ. We don't want to hide from who we once were. We do not want to deny who we once were or forget who we were. It's good to be reminded of who we were, where we were, and who we were once like. But Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, or, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, amen. Verse 11, and such were some of you good to be reminded that this is who we once were, but, ah, he could have put, but God, right, but he says, but you, 
received, right? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Simon Peter is in recognition of these things. It's a snapshot of the, of the before and after. This is who I once were. And the same for all of us who were washed and were sanctified by the Spirit of, our, of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. We should not be afraid of who we once are, were, even if we are accused. Because if you are forgiven, who can lay any charge against God's elect? He goes on to say, after just Simon Peter, he says that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Servant, in the Greek word here, is doulos, which also means slave. Peter is calling himself a slave to Jesus, not just because he's trying to prove his humility, but rather he's giving this, this idea of what it means to belong to someone else. Peter belongs to Christ. This servant, this slave, he loved his master. And he loved his master so much that he could not bear the thought of leaving his master. Again, this may be small. But how much can you relate to that kind of language? Slave, servant, doulos to Christ. I hope that you can. I hope that you can freely, with joy, say that I'm a slave to Christ. I belong to him. He says he's an apostle, which clearly Peter is an apostle. He's a witness of the works of Christ. He was called out by Christ specifically. He was sent by Christ to be his messenger. It also means that he was chosen. He was chosen and he was called by Christ. Now, none of us are apostles in that meaning, that Peter certainly meant it, but we have been called. We have been chosen to serve Christ, to follow Christ, to be messengers of the gospel of Christ, to be ambassadors to Christ. So here, Peter, in introducing himself in verse 1, we already can relate to him. We can relate to him very much, not just in his failures, but what in, in the ways that Christ has worked in his life. But then he, he addresses his, his readers as he's relating to them. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing by ours, with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in 1 Peter, he addresses the, the elect exiles, right? And he says a whole lot about, which says a whole lot, a lot about suffering and the, how Christians were suffering, and yet now he turns the greeting to them personally. And he turns to this greeting not just personal, but in solidarity, in union with them. He's not coming at them like a politician does. You know how a politician, when election season comes around, you see him on the commercials and you say, and they say, see, I'm just like one of you. I stand in the field, in a farm, and I pretend I know what I'm looking at, this dirt here and this corn and the cotton. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. Or the other politician who is walking down the city streets and people and throngs are following him and he's pointing at them and they're waving and he's saying, I'm just like you. I know your hardships. That's not what Peter's doing. He's not being condescending to us. 
He's not saying, I'm one of you. He is saying, you are like one of us. You are like one of us. And the wording, to those, includes all of us who are in Christ. So now we know who the recipients are. It's to all of those who are in Christ. And so what do these recipients of this letter have? What is it that makes us like Peter? Well, we have long stories of sin, like Peter. But greater, what truly defines us is that we have, as he says, have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And by ours, he is meaning all the other apostles. Now, I want you to understand how profound this is because in church history, it did not take long for this idea to change. The truth didn't change, but the practice changed. Some of you might remember years back in our study in church history, the good word, hierarchialism. And in hierarchialism, it says pretty much means this, is that, any, uh, that there's always going to be someone better than you. There's always going to be someone in essence, in worth, in value, in position that are better than you, and you'll always need them to get to the next point spiritually. So a hierarchy was created in theology and in eschatology, and in, excuse me, not eschatology, but in ecclesiology. And this is what sin does. Sin breeds a superiority and division of all kinds that divides us into all kinds of different things, such as race and gender and religion and things like, or what we believe. But not what, that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is not dividing us in those things, but he says, uh, it says, your faith which you have obtained by faith is the exact same way I obtained faith, and that is by the grace of God. The grace of God, brothers and sisters, puts us all on the same level playing field. And what he says next is the level that we are all on. And this level, by God's grace, is not the bottom, but it is the top. Yes, maybe slaves, but we're no longer slaves to sin and death. We're slaves to Christ. We're slaves to our the glorious King who has saved us and redeemed us and has brought us into freedom and brought us into life. He has given us grace to, to live the way that we were meant to live. So listen, there are no special prophets. There are no special apostles. There are no preachers or teachers or super Christians or pastor or elders or popes or bishops. Not even Peter, not even Paul, not even Luke or Timothy or Titus. But we were all equal in obtaining our faith and righteousness through Jesus Christ and him alone. And essentially what this means, the priesthood of the believer. The only one then on top, there's only one hierarchy. And there's only one that is supreme and above all, and that is Christ. And he alone is to be exalted and worshipped above all, not man. No matter what title they may bear. And why? 
Because just like Peter, our salvation is based completely on the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and none other. The false teachers who want people to look at them, to adorn them, to pay them, they want them to work for them and need them, right? They need people who need them. They all have the same thing in common. I'm better than you, and you need me. I have the special knowledge. I have the special truth, and I dispense grace. I dispense righteousness. Ooh, that is running thick in our culture today. It may not be religious, but it's religious. If Peter says that about all of us, that you and that me, that we have obtained faith with equal standing, then if there's anyone else today, if there's anyone today that says or shows in practice that you are not on equal standing in the righteousness of Christ and that he alone is supreme, then they are to be anathema. Essentially, that means kick them out. Yet think about, brothers and sisters, how sweet this is. That you, the recipient of this letter of 2 Peter, that your salvation, that my salvation could not come from any other way. It could not come any other way. Peter's not the hero. We are not the hero as much as our flesh wants us to be the hero. We are not the hero. Peter wants to be the hero. Peter wanted to be the hero, right? He wanted to save Jesus. He wanted to save everyone else, but he failed. And we fail. We're frail. He was frail. And we are incapable on so many levels to save ourselves. But our righteousness alone is the same as Peter's righteousness, and that is Christ's righteousness. Our only ability to stand before God as a rescued, reclaimed, adopted, and reconciled pe people demands entirely upon the righteousness of Christ and nothing of you. That's good news. Because he alone lived a sinless life. And he alone could atone and has atoned for sin. He alone can save and he has brought us safely to him and he will bring us safely home to him. So brothers and sisters, have you, do you believe that you have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ? That's a truth that changes things. That's a that's a knowledge that changes things. That's a knowledge that gives direction. Played that one off. That changes things. So we talked about the aim. We talked about the theme. But in verse 2, he gives us simply the, the reason for the letter. So addressing the recipient's Here's the reason in verse 2. And it's in a simple greeting, it's in a simple blessing, and yet it's filled with the reason. And we've been talking about that earlier. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you 
in the knowledge of God and of, and of Jesus our Lord. And this is a blessing. This is a blessing. This is meant to be a blessing to all these recipients of equal standing who obtained a faith, right, with, as we have in the righteousness of, of God. May you be blessed. May you be blessed in hearing these things. Now, these words, sometimes we just kind of fly through because we want to get to the next one, but we don't want to miss the depth of meaning and to be, to be lost. We should never be used to hearing about grace. We should never be used to, be, to hearing about peace. We should never be used to hear about that abounding resource of God, of His grace that He has poured out and He has lavished upon us through the blood of Christ and get used to hearing the, the peace that is the fruit of God's grace. Grace is given. Grace upon grace. To the Christian, not only in our conversion, but also God's grace is the means by which we are daily sanctified. And peace is what is missing. Peace is what's missing in, in everyone, right? We see that. Everyone is missing peace, and yet everyone is seeking it, right? Everyone wants peace. They want financial peace. They want emotional peace and mental peace. They want peace from stress. They want peace from all kinds of things, all the things that have gone wrong. They want, they want peace, peace in the world, world peace. But peace is not just an outer struggle, but peace is an inner struggle because peace is is the joy, it is the contentment, it is the satisfaction of, of being forgiven. It's being satisfied in Christ and being forgiven. It's, it's being understanding and knowing that you've been made new, that you've been reconciled by God, by His grace. The hope of this blessing in verse 2 is that the expectation is, is that all Christians are growing and increasing in their knowledge of grace and understanding peace. That's why he says multiplied. May grace and may peace be multiplied to you. That you're growing in these things. Because if you're not growing in these things, then something has gone wrong. And when something goes wrong in this way, what do we lose? We lose that sense of direction. That I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm doing this. Do you know today, even though we have... GPS in our pockets, and we have map apps on our phones and cars that can tell us where to go, it's, it's still funny how even though we know it's taking us to where we're going step by step, that we still feel like we have a sense of direction. Like, all right, I'm, you know, you ever done? We're like, all right, I'm just going to go. I'm not talking about the Michael Scott thing into the lake. I mean, on the road, <laughs> you're, you're going and you're like, okay, I'm going to take a left here, but I have no clue why. And the reason why we have no clue why is because we have nothing that grounds our understanding of why we take a left here. And I mean the legitimate left, right? We have no understanding. There's no, um, there's no experience. There's no knowledge of why we get there. So we still need something that grounds us. And grace and peace, in the same way, brothers and sisters, grace and peace does not exist outside of a vacuum, right? Meaning, meaning they're not detached from ejective truth. 
Grace and peace is not just something that is just willy-nilly floating in the air that anybody could jump and obtain if they get excited enough. Grace and truth is grounded in objective truth. We want grace and peace to be multiplied upon you all. We want you to feel peace. We want you to be at peace despite whatever may be going on in your life. We want you to feel and delight in the grace of God and to enjoy it. And the reason why is because you were meant to. You were meant to. But understanding this knowledge of grace and peace is firmly rooted in what? The knowledge of God. And only in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is, we want grace and peace to be multiplied to you, but you're only going to see it and really love it and delight in it if it's real. And that's where it comes from. That's where it's real. The knowledge that Peter is referring to is not just intellectual pursuits. It's not just academic. It's just not some nerd at a Bible school who's been there for years teaching and says they know everything, but they never believed it. That's not the knowledge that he's referring to. The knowledge that he is referring to is paired with the, uh, with the personal experience of growing in the grace of God. It's growing in the grace of God. The two words that are used throughout 1 Peter uh, uh, for, the, for, for knowledge, and well, one of them here in verse 2 is uh, epigenosi, the other one is uh, gnosko, but it's, it means, this word means personal recognition. You've personally recognized, you've, you've come to a personal understanding and experienced something, and you know it's to be true. You've seen it from God's word, you've experienced it, it's full and it's intimate. It's why the Old Testament we see when an Old Testament man gets married to his wife and says that he knew her. And we all know what that means. There's an intimacy of knowing. The knowledge of God here is not knowing, is not simply knowing about God, but it's knowing God. It's knowing God in Jesus Christ as he's been revealed in Scripture. And beginning in verse 2 here, and all the way through chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And throughout all of, of first, our Second Peter, in between, we are told completely fully of the knowledge of God and the experience of Christ, which is necessary for us to understand the grace of God and the peace of God and so that we will be firmly fixed in our faith. This knowing is the anchor to our souls. In a culture that demands relativism and pluralism, we need to be strong in the foundation of the knowledge of Christ. Because there is no grace and there is no peace otherwise. How could you understand peace if you have no understanding of being forgiven for your treason against God? How could you understand peace if you don't understand the objective reality and the need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was the perfect substitute for, the sin, for your sin on the cross? How can you have grace multiplied to you if sin is more satisfying? How can grace 
even be needed if my own good works get me where I need to go. That is why the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, of and of Jesus Christ, is the very first thing that false teachers and the evil one attacks. Did God really say? Is that really true? Is that really who God is? And the blessing here in verse 2 that he is saying to us and those recipients of this letter, the reason why we have 2 Peter is so that we will delight in grace and that we would delight in grace, our peace. We would love peace. We would love these things, but we also would be firmly rooted in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we get to do that. That's what we get to do. We get to be firmly rooted in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Because the Lord has given us three means by which we know him. First, or we gain the knowledge of him. First is that he has given us his specific revelation, that is the word of God. We see and we hear and we learn to know God through the reading of his word, through the hearing of his word, through the preaching and teaching of his word. It's the solid rock that we are building our lives upon is, is Christ. The word of God. Second, he has given us his Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. The Spirit calls us. The Spirit regenerates us. He gives us life and faith to respond to the gospel. The Spirit is leading us in all righteousness and, and, and always pointing us to Christ and his word that we would know him intimately and feel that knowledge. And lastly, he has given us each other, the church. Certainly down the line, a little bit from God's word and from the Holy Spirit, but the church wears primarily what God has given us to hear his word preached and his word taught. And it's also primarily through God's people that we see the Holy Spirit work in our lives and encourage us. So brothers and sisters, as we start Second Peter, we can see how we relate to Peter. We can see that this letter is written to us and that we have obtained the faith of equal standing with theirs by the righteousness of Christ. That's, that's amazing. And the reason for this letter, written for you, is for your grace and peace, so that it was found only in the blessing of the knowledge of God. So can you relate? Is this relevant to you? Do you understand and know that any righteousness that gives us any standing before the Lord is because Christ has imputed it upon you? This is the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. This is why we are in 2 Peter, so that we would endure, and that we would endure well on the firm foundation that is Christ Jesus our Lord. So may the Lord continue to build us up. And may the Lord continue to multiply his grace and peace in us through the knowledge of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.